Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to my guests about the five things from their life that they choose to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things from any time in their life that they cherish, and one thing that they wish they could forget. Simple, really. My guest reminiscing with me in this episode is the actor, stand-up comedian and internet sensation Johnny Weldon. Over the past two years, Johnny has grown a devoted audience on social media, all waiting to see the next video he releases, most of which feature him in various scenarios that any actor would know well. First nights, the end of a show, rehearsals, auditions, all hilarious. The sort of detailed and finely crafted sketches that constantly go viral and are followed by such people as Maxine Peake, Phil Daniels, Daniel Maines, Mira Sayal, Giles Brandreth, Mark Gatiss, Stephen Merchant and Ricky Gervais. And in fact, it seems everybody wants to be in Johnny's videos. He's had some incredible guest appearances, including Tracy Ann Oberman, Russell Tovey, the late great John Chalice and, most recently, the Emmy-winning stars of Ted Lasso, Nick Mohammed, and Hannah Waddingham. Not bad for somebody who started acting at the age of 11, playing Michael Banks in Richard Eyre's production of Mary Poppins at the Prince Edward Theatre. Then he played Gavroche in Les Miserables at the Queen's Theatre. He's gone on to be in The Bill, Doctors, The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe, loads of pantomimes, worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company and performs as a stand-up in London and all over the UK. So a pretty full career and one that looks set to burst open as suddenly everyone seems to know his name. But do they know what he'd choose to put in a time capsule? Well, here's the chance to find out. Welcome to Johnny Weldon's Time Capsule. If I look at the first video I did compared to it now, a lot of things are quite different. There do seem to be kind of common things that work for all these people that I'm now part of, these Twitter video people. But yeah, it, it has effectively just been me in my room on my own having an idea. In terms of like getting feedback, I've got a sort of core group of four or five mates that I send actors and comedians and I send it to them before I put it out. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I get all defensive. I go, is this funny? And they'll go, no. And I'll go, what do you mean? It's hilarious. And then, <laughs> but then once in a while, <laughs> once in a while, it's quite interesting. You can, you might get a common response like, oh, I don't understand that ending. And you go, oh, okay, well, that's really useful. So I'll go away and I'll refilm that and I'll post it. But to be honest, it's, it's like doing stand up, for example. You don't know if it's good or if it's funny or if it's working until you do it and send it out and get some sort of, response no obviously I, I hope that they're good but also it's it's also i think that I, I wonder if it would work now because when i was uploading them there was no press nights there was no auditions there was no nothing no. so i think there was a sort of maybe a nostalgic element to it as well i was talking about all these things that 
none of us could do. What's interesting is that the assumption would be, and I understand your assumption, that actually the people who are watching this are actors. And for nearly all of my career, if you've ever gone to anybody at the BBC or ITV, any television executive, and said to them, I've got this great idea, it's based around a bunch of actors, they go, no, it's, it's too niche. Right, yeah. People don't know our world. And then suddenly along comes Larry Sanders, and the entire world is watching it. And so their argument that actually people don't know this world doesn't apply, doesn't work. Ricky Gervais, when he first did The Office, I spoke to him and Steve Merchant at a BBC party and said to them how much I'd enjoyed the first series of The Office, Mm. which at that time was a a small show on BBC Two. And they said, yeah, but, you know, it's never going to get a big audience (laughs) because, you know, you need to have worked in an office to understand it. And I said... Well, I've never worked in an office, and I understand it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, it's, it's funny you mentioned. I almost actually sat the office down as one of my things that I'd want to pick up in, in uh, sixty years, because for me, it's um, the absolute. You know, that and extras, to be honest, are the yeah. huge influence over me. But you know, I think to, I'm binging Succession at the moment. Um, right. I've got a bad back, so I'm glued to my sofa at the moment. I'm just binging Succession, <laughs> and I've never worked in the financial district and stayed up partying and multi-billionaire but you I suppose you as long as it's written with fundamental characteristics that you can relate to Mm -hmm. or it's just entertaining you know yeah it should work but you know go back to what you say about the office is um the location isn't really the thing you relate to there it's the fact that Tim's in love with Dawn and it doesn't work out and we've all sort of we've all been in love or we've all fancied someone or we all know what it's like to work with somebody who's a little bit irritating and that's Gareth we all know what it's like to have somebody around us that's a bit uncomfortable which is David Brent and Mm -hmm. I think that so I have had quite a few meetings with producers off the back of these videos about developing my own thing. Mm. And um, some have said, oh, we get too many unemployed actor, unemployed writer, struggling artist submissions. Others have said there is something quite interesting there. But I also remember I had a drink with uh, Russell Tovey. I did one of my Twitter sketches was with him. Lovely. And he very kindly said, uh, I said, I wanted to buy him a drink, say thank you. And we were talking about sitcoms. And uh, instead of just writing to try and do something that somebody wants you to do, he was like, just write your thing, do your thing, and then grab all those people and go, come and look at this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, it's not what they're saying it is. It's not unemployed actor desperately trying to get work. It's employed actor. It's actor going for auditions. Yes. I do get people that say, I've, I've never acted in my life. I don't even know a single actor, but I find these situations funny. Basically, all my sketches, really, if you break it down at the same, it's my character, basically me, trying to achieve something which is incredibly awkward, not quite achieving it, maybe achieving it, but it all going wrong and then at the end regretting it. And that really, I mean, that's sort of what we all face all the time. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So hopefully it can work in a sitcom world one day, hopefully soon. I think it will. Thanks. But anyway, either way, I'd cast you. So all I need to do now is become head of ITV and there you are, you're made. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, Johnny, what I've asked you to do is to think of five things from your life that we're going to put into a time capsule and we'll talk about them and see what it tells me about your life. Right. Okay. So the thing that I think is great about this podcast, I've enjoyed listening to it as well. You've got so many brilliant guests and so many amazing stories. There's an infinite amount of ways of doing this. Mm -hmm. So I actually found it quite hard to (laughs) pinpoint things, whether it would be an object or a memory or a place, and if I would put them in a time capsule for me or for the world or Mm -hmm. for future generations. But what I've worked out is that I must just be inherently selfish because these are are all (laughs) memories that... Basically, the way I've gone about it is that on on my deathbed, if I can open up this time capsule... It will be like a fly on the wall into significant moments or people or locations in my life. Perfect. I don't know if I've done it right or wrong. It's an individual thing. This is whatever you want it to be, I think. Great. So the first one is, um, so I come from this little seaside town near Bournemouth. Mm -hmm. And when I was 11, 12 years old, my mum would pick me up at three o'clock at the school gates and we would drive up to London and we would do a show in Mary Poppins And my mum would go to Cafe Nero for three hours. She'd wait at the stage door. She'd drive me back home. I'd sleep in the car. I'd go to school the next day. And that was kind of my life for about 11 to 12 years old. And that was before I got into the... uh, This this just sounds like a shameless sort of like, here, this is my life. But I went to the Sylvia Young 
You know, have you heard of the theatre school where the kids tap dance outside, you know, from the train station up to the school? Of course I have, yeah. Well, the, the thing that I'm going to put in my time capsule is actually the form of transport that I used to get to school. So basically, I, I boarded at this school for about a year until I was kicked out uh, for just being a nightmare 13-year-old. <laughs> and my mum said to me, before we find you a new place to stay, you're going to have to commute for about two weeks. It's the only thing we can do. And it would be getting on the train at about 20 past six in the morning, getting to Waterloo at about 8am, going to school, doing the same journey back at about five o'clock in the evening. And I don't remember the exact conversation, but basically that after a couple of weeks, my mum must have said, how are you finding it? And I must have said, it's not a problem. And I did it for two years. So from 14 to 16, I was a commuter oh my God. four hours a day on a train. And I loved it. But the, the thing that I'm going to put in my time capsule is, and this is a real thing that I experienced, which is called the 505 crew. Now, the 505 crew was a group of about 10 people who sat in the exact same seats every single day. It was like a train gang. And if it was a birthday, they would bring cake. <laughs> they would have an annual Christmas dinner uh, they would play games and it was all these people, all these different ages, all these different nationalities. And they worked all over the city in totally different jobs, completely different lives. But the only thing that bound them was these seats on this commute every single day. And they sort of took me under their wing, looked after me. And I was part of the 505 crew for about two years. Oh, brilliant. If I look back at the kind of bizarre, brilliant, unique independent teenage years I had that kind of captures it for me, the 505 crew. It's a fantastic thing. If you're a commuter at all, you do occasionally come across those little groups of people. It's surprising that almost everybody who commutes isn't part of a group like that, though, don't you think? I suppose so. I think a lot of people like to keep themselves themselves at that time of day. Yeah. But it's a funny thing. It's a sort of quite territorial thing. You know, if you got on a train and sat in a commuter seat, they wouldn't be particularly happy. It's a proper kind of creatures of habit behavior mm. and i also look back you know it's such a weird concept like a 14 15 year old boy in a school uniform hanging out with like 10 adults i mean it sounds like an itv drama that's just going to end horrendously <laughs> but there was absolutely none of it it was a really lovely experience and as i said once a year they would they would have a, a, a christmas dinner and in fact that's one of my main memories of the 505 crew is that we went for a uh, we went for a curry by Waterloo Station, and um, they said, you know, your mum or dad must come along with you, you know. Hmm. So my dad joined, we all sat down, and they did a secret Santa. <laughs> One of the gang couldn't make it, so my dad ended up with this secret Santa present for the person that couldn't make it, and I remember he opened it, and it was one of those edible thongs. <laughs> So when I was 15, I sat with 10 of my 505 crew gang watching my dad with, a, with an edible thong at Waterloo Station. Completely inappropriate. I know. Highly inappropriate. I can't remember whose secret centre... Come on, it was yours. You know it was you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have got onto trains and then people have got on just before it was about to leave and they've stood in front of me and gone, uh, sorry, excuse me, you, you're in my seat. Yeah. And they said, but you don't understand. At Seven Oaks, um, Keith gets on and then we play cards. <laughs> Generally, I've gone, yeah, all right, fine. And moved. Yeah. yeah. I remember, though, I remember once being on a train and there was an argument over a seat which <laughs> resulted in the police coming on. I think it actually <sighs> got physical. Oh, my God. There were so many of events, so many things that happened within the 505 group. Oh, there was also inner politics between the adults. I think there was some affair going on somewhere as well. Okay. It, was a, it was a brilliant thing. Um, <laughs> Have you kept in touch with any of these people? No. No? No, I, I haven't. My nickname to them, they, they didn't really call me Johnny, they called me Potter because <laughs> their only other connection between a teenager who was pursuing acting somehow was harry potter even though <laughs> harry potter is not pursuing acting he's the only other like actor teenager fictional thing and they, i just became potter and my dad at the christmas curry became potter's dad and i feel like if i saw them now i'm potter no more do you know what i mean yeah it was of the time and it was only then the idea of two years back and forth back and forth every day on that train yeah you must have really liked acting I did. Like school was school was fun, you know. It's not for everyone, but I definitely enjoyed having the uh, independent teenage years, and I had absolutely no issue getting on a train, being on my own, 
I think I was a lot more confident when I was younger than I am now. And I'd be just outwardly chatting to people. Mm. But also, I also think it did as well is it kind of set me up to feel that when I was 18, 19, I could move to London yeah. and pursue acting and have this independence, you know, and I've never really struggled with being in a big city or anything like that. And I think a lot of it is down to those years. Mm. And you need the confidence that something like that gives you, because as you say, that transition from being a child actor to being an adult actor is not easy. No, not at all, not at all. And I think that um, kind of between the ages of about 18 and 22, 23, I was still playing probably like a 15-year-old or something like that, or even younger. And then I started to move out of that. And it is an incredibly, you know, that that is that is the test, you know. Yeah. Particularly as well, because I was very lucky to be successful as a, as a teenager. And when you're that age and you're acting, you're not really thinking about the reality of the industry. You just do it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And you just move on to the, go to your next class. Mm. So to suddenly to start dealing with the reality of the industry and rejection and, uh, and how that affects your mental health and everything like that. It's, it is a, it was, it was a huge test. I mean, I love it and I don't think I'd ever want to do anything else, but I'm sort of always, you know, I didn't, I didn't then reach a stage and feel settled with it. I'm in a constant stage of an uphill battle with <laughs> the whole thing. Aren't we all? Look at me. Still no. the same. Still changing, still learning, still thinking, oh, I'll have a go at that. I heard a song on the radio the other day, and it was a bloke who was singing just on the point of his break, and he kept, in a way, yodelling into his falsetto. Mm. This bloke had a very clear jump between the two voices. He'd been lauded as this, you know, there's the new big hit. And I thought, oh, shit, I could have done that. At that age, I could have done that. And it never occurred to me to do it. And do you still sing now? I do sing, but in a different way. I sing much more like Father Christmas singing a song. Right. Did you have to do much singing in the pantomime? <laughs> no, never did. I just had the most insane panto experience. Mm. I was in St Albans and we were 11 shows in or 12 shows into our 48 show run. And, um, you know, we're all terrified of COVID. Mm -hmm. We're all worried about who's going to drop first and then we're going to, it's going to spread for the next couple of days. We'll be shut down and all of this. Anyway, after our 12 shows, a three show day, they're fun. And uh, we all get a WhatsApp text to say, can everyone come to the green room? And we're told that a substance has been found in the building and everyone has to evacuate immediately. Oh, my God. Cut to 24 hours later, asbestos has been found in the roof of the venue, <gasps> and the entire run was cancelled. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was one thing. But then about 24 hours after that happening, I got a call from the top dog at the production company, and he said, oh, the comic in Canterbury has just tested positive can you get on a train, watch the show tonight and go on tomorrow with the script? <laughs> Brilliant. And that's exactly what I did. It was um, Duncan James. Oh, right, yeah. One of the singers from the band Blue. And also Ben, shout out to Ben Roddy, who's the resident dame there as well, who was quite amazing to watch and to work with. Yeah. Have you had that kind of common actor's dream of being on a stage and not knowing why you're there or what you've got to say, but you know you've got to say something, <laughs> but you don't know the lines? Have you ever had that dream? <laughs> I, I've had I that think dream. everybody has that, yeah. That actually happened to me. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was on stage with a script and, and I remember some of the actors would sort of put their arm around me like they're playing my best mate, but instead they're kind of just guiding me to what part <laughs> of the stage I need to... So it's been a roller coaster. Panto, like, Panto's mental at the best of times, but Panto in COVID is just is insane. Mm. It was quite stressful. And whilst we were rehearsing, we were all right in St Albans until the bloody roof caved in with asbestos. <laughs> but we were hearing up and down the country, you know, horror stories of things like all the six principals have COVID, so all the six dancers are on, and now there's no ensemble. You know, we heard stories like that. We heard mm. stories of directors stepping into dames' dresses at last minute and things like that. This one that I was doing in Canterbury at one point had over about half the cast off. It's incredible, isn't it? And then they were pulling in all the actors that were now unemployed from St Albans. <laughs> so that's the, it's sort of, sort of St Albans took over Canterbury temporarily. <laughs> as long as there's a bloke in a dress and a pyro at the end, they don't care. I'm sure that half the adults don't even watch it. It's brutal. I saw a great meme once, which was sort of like a skeleton on a trolley, and it just said, me leaving the stage door at the end of Panto. <laughs> they, are in, they, are, they are utterly, utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. 
we will put the lovely 505 Club into the time capsule for you. Thanks. To remind you of all the brilliant times you had going back and forth for four hours a day, you nutter. That's insane. Yeah. Insane. <laughs> all right, lovely. Let's move on to your second item. Yeah, so the second thing that I think I'd like to put in, again, is another memory which so far for me has kind of been stamped on the my passport of life so far, which is the, the first proper stand-up gig that I did. Mm. Now, this is kind of not true because I'd done a couple before this, but those were abysmal. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd get up in a room in front of strangers for about three minutes and get off and go home and think I never want to do that again. So this is what I kind of considered to be my my first proper stand-up gig, which wasn't, annoyingly, actually, it wasn't too long before the... Um, uh, before the the pandemic sort of started, it was it would have been around sort of October November two thousand and nineteen. Right. So, what led you to suddenly decide to have a go at that? Well, I think that so stand up is something that I've just always loved, always admired. Uh, it's something I would love to go and see and, and experience in, in, in my spare time. If I had a day off, I'd stick some on Netflix. I just thought it was brilliant. And I love the, I just love the idea of one person with a microphone making hundreds or thousands of people laugh. Mm-hmm. And now with Netflix and things like that, millions across the world. And I just think it's such a powerful thing. Um, I also remember watching an interview with Lee Mack and I'm sure they said to Lee, um, because he was talking about his show, and they said, "How how would you get how would you get a sitcom off the ground?" So any 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 aspiring writers out there, what would you do? Mm. And he said, "I'd say do stand up." He said, "Because there's so many people writing sitcoms and sending them off." But his argument, he was saying, "If you do stand up, you can hopefully try and control your progression and success more, yeah. and then you can get yourself into a you know write a sitcom and get attention that way." And I suppose I was kind of quite frustrated at the time of what was going on in the world of acting, which wasn't an awful lot. I had like two or three years of a pretty dry spell. Mm -hmm. And I just suddenly thought about how stand-up is an opportunity to eat. Yeah, obviously it's going to be unpaid for some time, Mm -hmm. but it's a thing that you can control, you know, with the amount of open mic clubs in London. If you wanted to, tonight, you could probably, it wouldn't be too late, if you could come up with five minutes to write and direct and star in your own little five-minute show and it might go terribly, but it might go well. But it's it's you taking control of your exposure yeah. and a skill. Um, so, yeah, those two, my love for it anyway, but also feeling like I've just got to do something. I've got to do something. Otherwise, I'm just going to go mental at the phone. With the whole business becoming so star-led as well, that's the problem, is it? You sort of go, well, how do I become famous when people will only cast famous people? Yeah. So I, I thought... And I was out running and I was listening to Mickey Flanagan's Desert Island Discs, I think it was. And uh, he was saying he, he did a course to get him into it. And I thought, well, you know, perfect. Because when, when I'd done it before, I just got up and sort of ranted. And I had some bullet points in the notebook and it was not good. But I put <laughs> myself onto a course. And, and I, I really recommend it for anyone who's like thinking of wanting to get into it. Um, there was a company called City Academy. And I paid something like 120 quid. And one evening a week for about eight weeks, we would all meet at the Umbrella Rooms, just off Tottenham Court Road. It's where sort of loads of auditions take place. And it was all sorts of people, different ages, different walks of life. I think I was the only one that was already a performer. Mm. And week by week, we would learn about different styles of writing, how to write setups and punchlines and different, how to deal with heckles and just basically like a general brief and quite quick, but at the same time, a bit in depth course in, in stand-up. But it finished with us all doing five minutes above a pub in Soho, where we could invite our friends and family to mm. see it. And I think that night there must have been around 80, maybe even more, 100 people above this pub. Yeah. And everybody just brought everyone they knew. And the compare, Kate, who was brilliant, who ran the, the, the course, she said, as she was emceeing, she was opening, she said, now, I don't know if anybody's ever been to a, a kind of graduate showcase night before. She said, but you have to treat the acts like it's a sort of three-year-old's birthday party (laughs) and if you see the slightest hint of them giving anything like if you see a a toddler walking towards you you have to praise them for being able to walk Mm. it was like that basically she was saying if you see them even hint at attempting a joke you laugh your head off (laughs) and i was put on laughs for whatever reason and it was just like Hopefully not all the laughs were patronising, but it just went, it went, it went brilliantly. It mm. went really, really well. And it gave me the confidence 
to carry it on. So I think that I'm going to put it in there so I can revisit it for A, to relive that and see that moment, but also kind of what it represents for me in terms of the way I try to handle how difficult the industry can be. Mm. And then I'd like to point out how after that, every other one did not go ever as well <laughs> as the first one that I did with all my friends. About two days later, I was riding this, you know, adrenaline ecstasy wave for a few days. I was like, oh my God, that's it. I was like, next stop live at the Apollo. You know, this is, and then the arena tour and then surely I'm going to have a Netflix deal. Um, so I was like, right. So I joined this Facebook group of like England or London or, you know, surrounding London area um, stand up performing. And I found a space in South End. I was like, I don't care. I'm going to spend 20 quid. I'm going to get on a train. And I got to South End <laughs> and I arrived above this pub and there was like four kind of wooden school benches. That was the audience, four rows. Oh. And I think on there must have been about, I don't know, 10, eight, nine, 10 people, something like that. Yeah. And there was no stage. It was just the microphone in the corner and I, I did it. And um, yeah, it didn't go quite as well as the showcase. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. But that's exactly what you need to do. You are right. And you need to face that sort of uh, that failure. All stand-ups say that, that actually the thing that makes them good is all the times they've been bad. Yeah, I, I think so. And also, I, I kind of like the idea with stand-up that it's, you know, as we know, you can go and watch a, a theatre production or you can go and watch a show and you kind of can't really work out why that actor is at that sort of level of success because um, they might not be forever. <laughs> but with stand-up, it's like, it's not, it's just black and white. It's, are you funny? Do you make a room of people laugh or do you not? So the success is so transparent. It's, it's, that's the path. You have to be good. You have to make people laugh. If you don't make them laugh, you've got to go away and work out what you can do instead to make them laugh. And then the more you make them laugh, the better you get, the bigger you become and, and so on and so forth. Whereas I find with the acting industry, there's so many more things that can come into it. And I'm saying that as a white bloke. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So many people have it so difficult within the industry. So I was looking for a, a, a more of a linear path. Yeah, basically. it is an immediate thing as well, isn't it? That thing of going, okay, well, that, that didn't work. That just didn't work, that joke. But the strange thing, of course, is it might work tomorrow night. Yeah. I have been saying to young actors when they've been asking advice, how do you get into acting? For about 15 years now, I've said, I think the route would be stand-up. If you can't get auditions or you can't get to be seen, then make people see you because you can just walk out and perform particularly women, actually. I've been saying to a lot of young girls, this sounds disgusting. Hang on a minute. Now, I've, I've been saying to lots of girls who've asked me, you know, how do I get into acting? I've said, well, you're in a very competitive field. So the thing to do is to stand out. And the, a great way for girls to stand out is to be funny. And people will notice. I think as well that uh, an advantage that actors have is that most actors I know can do things like they can do accents and they can play an instrument and they can, they've got skills, they can do impressions. They can already do lots of things that other people that, you know, for example, the other people that were doing that course who've just come from their non-acting job can't do, you know. And I think if you've got a, a special skill or an ability that you can get into your stand-up, you're already at an advantage. And also you're at an advantage not minding being looked at by lots of people. You know, people that aren't actors that try to be stand that's a whole other thing that they have to overcome. Mm. You've developed a skill also, I think, of accepting failure. I think that's a very important power to have as an actor. Yeah, but there's a difference between getting an email from your agent that's been passed on to say it's not going to go your way this time and the bleak failure of standing, <laughs> saying a line, waiting for an audible response and hearing someone... <laughs> cough out the back um you know i'm also where i'm talking as like someone who's been doing stand-up for years i really haven't you know I, as i was saying i was just in it sort of before the, the pandemic and i guess these videos are now a kind of transition my online stand-up world mm. um but the worst experience like so i went to new york about a month after doing this course and i was like and i went on my own and i was just for a holiday and i thought whilst i'm out there i'm gonna go to Greenwich Village, which is the kind of stand-up hub. Mm. Uh, it's slightly different out there. They make you pay, which is quite cheeky, really. In <laughs> London, you don't have to you don't have to pay to do it. it you're, in London, you have what's called a bringer night, so you can only perform if you bring a friend. Mm. So that fills out the room. The bar makes some money, and also there's a bit of an actual audience as opposed to just the audience being all the acts who are looking at their notes. But in New York, all the acts there's no. I don't think there is bringer nights, so it's just everyone that you perform to is looking over their notes of what they're going to say when they get up. 
Oh. And also you have to pay $5, I think. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this night that I went to, it was in Greenwich Village, and I was so nervous that I went for a couple of, I had about two pints. Even you know, I had about two pints before I did it. And then I got there, and they didn't tell us the order that we were going to be on. There was about 20 people there. And I thought, I'll just have one beer to calm my nerves, you know, because this is, even though it's not a massive big gig, it's still a very surreal thing to be on my own in New York City performing in front of, you know, 20 beer. And um, get a beer, and then sort of first two or three, four acts go by, and I'll just get another beer then. <laughs> and I didn't get called out. I was the last name to be pulled out, right? So at this point, A, I was drunk, and B, <laughs> all the other acts had obviously gone, because there's no <laughs> obligation to stay. So I did a stand-up gig, drunk in Greenwich Village on my own just performing to the bloke who ran the night (laughs) it's so unfair for them to do it alphabetically (laughs) yeah exactly and then at the end I sort of got off stage and he said he was like you know thanks man have a good night and I was like yeah bye then and I walked out that was that's it (laughs) completely pointless oh dear well, I won't put that night into the time capsule then, no. but I will put your very first gig in front of friends and family all being very sympathetic. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's all right. It's your choice, and I can understand why you've chosen it. It's a lovely thing to revisit, and I hope that that same experience becomes a regular experience for you. Oh, thank you very much. Mm. Thanks. Right, lovely. Let's move on to item number three. Okay, it's time for a short ad break, but we'll be back with you in two shakes of a lamb's tail. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, that lamb took its time, didn't it? Still, let's get back to Johnny Weldon and discover what else he'd like to put in his time capsule. So this is, um, again, it's not something tangible or physical. I've only got one of those, and that's something I'd like to bury forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so this next one is, and I slightly stole this from Sean Walsh's podcast, but I wanted to take an air. I basically wanted to cover an area where I've achieved a few things mm-hmm. and bung it all together as to get a sort of three in one yeah. <laughs> uh, time capsule. So I wanted to put sort of the borough of Islington <laughs> and just sort of generally N2 to N4. That's what I wanted to put in. A little bit into Hackney. Oh, a little bit of Hackney, more Finsbury Park, Finchley, oh, uh, Highbury and Islington. Mm-hmm. That is the area I wanted to put Because basically I um, moved to London when I was 18, properly after going to school. And I've, I've always had to basically kind of work my arse off to, to live. You know, I've mm-hmm. not been fortunate enough, you know, to have a flat that I can just come and stay in in London and things like that. And over the years, I've done so many crazy day jobs, you know, things like selling things over the phone, selling, I used to sell things in the financial district. I used to demonstrate toy boomerangs in Harrods and Hamleys. <laughs> I've been a tour guide. I've done so many different things. But I suppose I wanted to put North London because it was the first place that I rented a flat 
just completely by myself. Mm. And and that was in Finchley. And I remember when I moved into that flat, I was like, well, this is an absolute moment I've been waiting for. You know, for, for so many years, I barely made ends meet and been sleeping in a room, you know, spare room in a house that I found on Gumtree and things like that. But yeah, I moved into this flat and it was in Finchley. Mm. And for me, it was a, you know, just a sort of significant moment. It is a significant moment. The first place that I moved into in London was just around the corner from the old Arsenal football ground. Ah, right. It's fantastic. Yeah, well, that's just... So I'm in Finsbury Park now. I'm literally mm. just off the Seven Sisters Road. Right. I got engaged in this flat, so that's another reason it all kind of falls under it as well. But I, mean, I was chatting to um, my other half about this, and I said, like, what should I take in? I? And I mentioned the things that I'd got, and she was like, well, she was like, well, where's anything about me then, your fiancé? <laughs> and I was like, no! North London, so it kind of comes under that as well, doesn't it? <laughs> so, North London makes me think of you, darling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The reason I put North London, so the three things is firstly getting engaged in Finsbury Park. Lovely. Secondly, my first flat. But the third thing as well is I decided to do a white collar boxing match in uh, Crouch End about a couple of years ago. And that as well was something. For me. I mean, I'll never do it again. But that was something for me that I will remember forever. And uh, these three things were, were, were bound by the, the N2 to 4 postcode. So how drunk were you when you decided to do this white-collar boxing match? It was... No, it was... <laughs> it was... I, I love boxing mm-hmm. you know i love the uh, the exercise of it i love watching it and i a few years ago maybe 2018 i think or 19 it was i'd had a pretty rough breakup and i'd lost a member of my family and it was like this kind of shitty time and at this boxing gym i saw a poster on the wall that said uh we've got a fight night coming up and it's basically a hundred pounds and for that hundred pounds You'll get an official vest that you can wear. It'll be a big night with a professional referee. You can invite your friends and family. There's usually about 200 people that come and watch it at the club. Mm-hmm. You get two or three additional training sessions a week. So it was really good for the money as well. And I thought, do you know what? Why not? Mm-hmm. So I signed up there and then. And I spent about four months training leading up to this boxing match. And it, yeah, it is and was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. How did you do? Well, I lost. <laughs> <laughs> but I, do you know what? I knew, because I, I don't, obviously we're not met in the real world, but I'm 5'4". Mm-hmm. Well, 5'4", I think it says 5'4 on my spotlight. I'm probably more like 5'3", you know. Right. That's probably why I stick my, usually stick my hair up as well. Let's get an extra inch on there. So I knew that it was going to be an uphill battle because of my reach, as it's known in the in the boxing world. So I knew that whatever, whoever I come up against, it's going to be... Very, very tricky. But I just wanted to, it was more about just doing something big and significant and helping me get in shape as well. Mm. So I got paired up with a guy called, I hope you won't mind me saying this if he listens, he's called Dylan Albertini. He's got to be a great boxer. He sounds like he's sort of is being tipped off by the mob. The Albertini fan. You don't mess with the Albertinis. You don't go near the Albertinis. <laughs> so anyway, I and I went up to the bloke who ran the gym. And uh, he said, you know, you're, you're going to be fighting Dylan. And I went, so which one's Dylan? And he got out his, uh, in, in his phone and he scrolled for his Instagram. And there was a picture of Dylan. And he was sort of topless, leaning against a wall with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and just absolutely shredded, you know. all the. And I thought, oh, for fuck's sake. And then I said, have you shown him a picture of, of me does he know what I look like and he said yeah but look at the one that we showed him and the picture that they showed him was on my Instagram and it, uh, a few days before this conversation it was um, like international first headshot day yeah and I'd put up my first ever headshot, which was when I was playing Michael Banks in Mary Poppins. Uh, and I've got like a little glint in my eye and I'm all smiley, little child performer. So that's what he got to see. Now, having said that, I did win one of the rounds and he won two of the rounds. So I did hold my own a little bit. But I, I remember stepping into the boxing ring and looking at him and thinking, well, this is insane because all our lives we're told that if you see violence... Obviously run away, yeah. obviously go and get help, don't go towards it. And I was looking at him with about 200 people around me thinking, well, the thing I'm meant to do now, the good thing, the thing people want me to do <laughs> is be violent. 
what sort of situation is this? <laughs> they paid good money to see me hurt someone. Actually hurt someone. And, you know, in the face as well. We've got now, we now have to punch each other in the face. And I'm an actor. And I'm an actor. <laughs> Think about the headshots, you know. Um, no, but we did three two-minute rounds. We both stayed on our feet. It was a bit... Uh, it was a bit sluggish at times and we all got a bit bruised, but um, it was great. So, yeah, that, getting engaged and my first ever flat, really, are th- three things I will always, you know, associate with North London. Fabulous. So all I can think of in those circumstances is there were some celebrity boxing matches a few years ago. Do you remember those? Yeah. Where people would train for months, they worked incredibly hard, and then they went in and you watched two grown men desperately trying to hit each other yeah but coming nowhere near it yeah nowhere near it and looking really out of control brilliant it's extraordinary it makes you realize just how skillful actual boxers are when you watch people who think they can box box oh my god so i did three two minute rounds with a minute gap you know in between Mm -hmm. and this was all in a very safe environment where there was like you know, if you wanted to say, oh, I'd like to stop, please, you could stop. We trained, everything was, you know, like that. Um, but then you think about sort of Madison Square Gardens or L.A. and Tyson Fury doing 12, three-minute rounds. I mean, it's it's astonishing. It is astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you realise, you look at them, you think, so, my God, the fitness involved in being a professional boxer is just absurd. Yeah. I, the reason I've done my back in, that I mentioned that earlier, yeah. I went for a boxing workout the other day. I did a squat jump and I've seized up my lower back. So <laughs> I had, I, and now I've basically lied down watching Succession for five days. Uh, there wasn't even another person near me and I've injured myself. <laughs> but you can still say it's a boxing injury. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, pathetic. I could never imagine getting into a ring with somebody who was then going to deliberately hit me. I've always hated violence. I'm terrified of it. Well, I said to Dylan before the fight, I said, um, I said, hey, man, are we going to we gonna wear the headgear, are we? And he went, no, I don't mind. I went, oh, I think we should. He was so <laughs> blasé. He was like, no, we can do. I was like, no, I think, I think, I think, I think, we, I think we definitely probably should, shouldn't we? And he was like, oh, yeah. fine, I'm... And uh, I don't bring my gun. Yeah, exactly. And the mob that have tipped me off to go down in the second. <laughs> you got the payoff then. Yeah. Right, well, I'll take that whole area of London then for you. Thank you. And I will put it into the time capsule. It can be done, I promise you. Yeah, that's a large one. Yeah, it's a good one, though. Good, good. So what's next? Number four. So this is my fourth one. Now, I've realised, actually, I suppose it's not too far away from the boxing workout, but it's just another thing that I will look back at and think, mm. wow, I'm so glad I got to experience and achieve that, which was um, running the London Marathon. Oh, my word. Yeah, I ran the London Marathon in t- 2019. Now, I- For a moment there, I thought you were going to say two hours and, and I thought, <laughs> like, you're joking. No, nah, it's a fair bit longer than that, Michael, no. Um <laughs> I'm starting to sound like I'm some sort of fitness freak, but I'm I'm really not. As I said, you know, I'm, I collapsed the other day doing a, a squat jump. I'm not a fitness person. If you're not a fitness person, the thrill of having done it must be even greater, I think. Yeah. All, all of these things that I've decided to do, like the boxing and the going, running for the marathon, they've all come out of a place of going, that sounds like a fun experience, as opposed to being mm. these people who are like, you know, I run 10 marathons a year and it needs to be under three and a half hours. But I, we lost a really good family friend about a year before the 2019 London Marathon. And mm. the hospice that looked after him literally put on Facebook, they said, we've got a spare space in the marathon. Mm. If you'd like to be involved, please email us, you know, a bit of information about yourself. So I did that. And uh, I literally got a call a few days later to say the space is yours if you want it. And there's no obligation to raise any amount of money because usually that you know you have to raise something like three grand for certain charities they said if you can raise money great if you can't you can't but you know that would have been around kind of september october Mm. and the marathon being in april 2019 and that was it that was sort of my life day in day out everything you know the amount of sleep I was getting, the amount of uh, food and drink and the, and, and, and the running, basically. Uh, but when, when I did it, it was just one of the, the most incredible experiences. Mm. And as I was planning to do this podcast, I was just thinking about what are the things that I look back on as the most incredible experiences for myself? And, and that was certainly one of them. Well, I think so. If you've done that amount of work to prepare yourself for it, 
in a way, if you'd sort of gone, I'll take the space, I can't be asked with doing it every day. I'm sure I'll be all right. It's only 26 miles. That would have been interesting. That's it. And the tough thing about it as well, I found, is because you run in April, so all the time that you're running, it's cold, it's dark. Yeah. If you got in from work, it's four o'clock now, if you get from work in an hour when it's dark, and then you've got to go out for a run tonight, there's not much joy in going out for a one and a half hour run in complete darkness in the cold. No. But then when it comes to it, because I love London as well, I love it so much, and I love the diversity, I love the different areas, I love the history, I love the architecture, and you see so much of it. You start down in Greenwich, you, you reach town, bridge at the halfway point you go right you go over towards kind of the dlr town and you know out to canary wharf and you just i just saw so much of london that i'd not seen before there's thousands and thousands of people along the way uh, my advice to anyone who runs the marathon is make sure you get your name printed across your chest <laughs> and if you just run next to the crowds and they'll see you they'll scream and shout your name um, yeah and obviously I got to raise money for, for charity as well, um, which, which was a great thing. And I ran it in uh, just over, I did four hours, seven minutes, 43 seconds. Very good. Which I was very pleased of. And then I got very drunk after. <laughs> so that's half the speed that the people who win it run. But actually, I've watched the London Marathon. I've watched a lot of marathons. I love watching athletics. And I've stood on the side and watched the leaders of races go by in a flash. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? It's astonishing. They run 26 miles constantly at that speed. It's amazing. Oh, I know. Have you seen the great Elliot Kipchoge sub two-hour marathon video? Yeah. Oh, my uh, God. Something like a consistent 14-minute 5Ks, I think. Yeah. He's basically running the four-minute mile over and over and over again. It's astonishing. He sort of looked fine as well, I thought, when I watched that. He, he didn't look like it was... I'm sure it was pretty painful, but he looked sort of yeah, like he was I know. fine. <laughs> it's like you're, you're not human. So well done for four hours. Oh, that's impressive, I think. It's great. Thank you. And I'm, I'm doing it again this year in, in October. I'm running it for Children with Cancer UK this time. We'll put a link to it with this, definitely. Thank you, thank you. I really like the idea of you saying, in my dotage, I'm going to open this up. I'm going to be able to relive myself as a young man. Yeah. I think it's really exciting. It's a lovely way to look at it. Oh, good. Yeah. So I will definitely put you running the London Marathon. Please do. Well done. Congratulations. Cheers, Michael. Thank you. Although there are many, many thousands of people who've done it, there are billions of people who haven't. Mm. And so it's a great thing to say you've done. Thanks very much. Lovely. All right. So now we're going to look at one thing that you would like to chuck away. When you open it up, you go, thank goodness I haven't had to think about that since I was a young man. Well, this is something that I can't get rid of as much as I absolutely wish I could. Now, I, I found this one quite tricky because really you've got to drum up an unpleasant experience. Mm. And... I, 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 I found it hard, really. I thought over the years about some jobs that I've done that I've not got the fondest memory of. I thought about when I started kind of suffering with an anxiety disorder when I was like 20, which took quite a few years to, to deal with. But those things I look back on, and I think as, as, as unpleasant and as difficult as they were, I've learned a lot from those things. I've used those things and I've come, gone through them and I've mm. come out the other side and, it's, and it, I've learned a lot about myself and it's ultimately made me stronger. So what I've decided, the thing I would bury, I mean, in a heartbeat, I would want this gone, <laughs> is the tattoo that I got when I was 19 in Amsterdam at about four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's what I want to get rid of, Michael. I think I can do it. <laughs> Please do. I, I went on a, a, a kind of class. I mean, it was sort of like Kevin and Perry go large. And the irony was my mate was actually called Perry. It was Johnny <laughs> and Perry go large. We'd done our first adult acting job. We had a bit of money. And we were like, off we go to Amsterdam and went to visit all the cafes and all the things like that. And um, yeah, I woke up in one of the hostels and I, uh, and I, I had a sort of strange cellophane wrapper thing on me. And I peeled back and I went, oh, I, got a, I got a tattoo last night. It's not terrible. It doesn't, it's not an ex-girlfriend's name or anything. Do you want to reveal any details? It's a small uh, Chinese symbol, mm -hmm. but we didn't know what it meant. So, <laughs> so we had to Google all the Chinese symbols. And I don't know how I feel about this still, but it's the Chinese word for strength. 
Um, now, now, bearing in mind, I was spending a week on my ass because I can't even do a squat jump. I don't think it sums me up too well. But I remember going to, a, we were leaving the hostel and a girl could see a bit of cellophane wrapper on me. And she went, what's that? And I said, explain this. And I've got this tattoo last night, but I don't know what it means yet. We need to go find out. And she went, yeah, because for all you know, it might mean something like you've got a tiny, yeah, you know, something like that. Yeah. So I found myself in this position where I was like, I've permanently inked myself something I don't know what it was and it's also got I've had to do a few acting jobs where you know I've got to take my top off on stage and things like that and it's uh, I just got to spend 10 minutes with the makeup team go I'm so sorry you've got so many better things to be doing than covering up this absolutely stupid tattoo that I regret getting yeah um particularly if that makeup person is Chinese and they go strength really yeah look, have you have you seen yourself You're five foot three <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> And then it turns out that it doesn't mean strength at all. It means alcoholic content. Yeah, exactly. I was walking through Chinatown a few years ago and I saw a packet of chewing gum that had uh, had the, the symbol on it as well. So then it must be a kind of Chinese brand of chewing gum called Strength Chewing Gum or something like that. Yeah, it's not. It's just not my fondest, proudest memory. No. Do you actually even remember having it done? Not really. <laughs> There's sort of flashbacks and things like that. And people always say to me, like, yeah, but, you know, you look at it and it'll always remind you of a time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I just I just want the, the memory. Well, I'm happy to take it away. Please do. And I have to say, there are worse things you could have done at four o'clock in the morning, drunk in Amsterdam. So well, that's true. Mm, that's true. Maybe you got away with it. Good. So there we are. That's gone. The next time you have to take your top off in a play, we'll all be there, obviously. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be on the poster. Johnny takes his top off. Exactly. It's going to be, where the hell, where has that gone? Thank God for that. Where is it? (laughs) All that's left is a massive laser scar. (laughs) Do you know, I wish I could have come on here and sort of got got some sort of deep philosophical, interesting thoughts or (laughs) feelings. But instead, it's just like a tattoo. That's been my life choices over the years. It's brilliant. It's very uplifting. I've loved looking at your life through these little portals. It's been brilliant. (laughs) Good. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you. It's great to meet you, and uh, I look forward to seeing your continued success. Thanks so much. Cheers, Michael. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Johnny Weldon. If you enjoyed listening, then please do tell your friends, subscribe and rate the show. You can follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook if you can find us among all the retweets of Johnny's brilliant sketches. You can download the theme tune written by Past the Peas Music on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. So that's it. We're finished. So, off you go. Come on, never darken my towels again. Unless, of course, you want to listen to another episode of My Time Capsule. In that case, hang around as long as you like. In fact, you can go right back to the beginning, if you like, and our very first guest, Stephen Fry. Yeah, I was very new to the world of podcasting in those days, but I'm getting the hang of it. As I always say, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving's not for you. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.